about that. Um, this past week, Sue and I were at Trinity International University. That's our, uh, one of our free church schools. And uh, within Trinity International University is Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So we just call it TEDS. And that's the seminary for our denomination. And we attended the EFCA Theology Conference. It was very profitable, and I'm grateful. We came back Friday night. And um, because Grant Brown is speaking for me, I was able to do that. So, Grant, thank you, and please come. Thank you, Jerry. And it is a privilege to stand before you this morning and a great responsibility. I... Um, Trust that the Lord will mediate by his Holy Spirit his word to our hearts and that he will uh, work in us as a result of what he has said in the scriptures. Let's bow in prayer and ask him to do just that. Heavenly Father, we're very conscious this morning of your great interest in human beings, your great interest in us, and we're ever so grateful. We ask this morning that as we look at a specific instance in your word of your concern and your intervention, that we will be reminded of things that we have known and we will be instructed in areas that we have not known. So we pray for your blessing on our time this morning as we look into your word, the eternal, immutable word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to look at a passage this morning in Exodus, and the third and fourth chapters are going to be the focus of our thinking. The story is about Moses, and uh, we're going to see how Moses has conversations with God. This is the first of many, and we're going to see what God has to say as he calls Moses to a task that Moses had no idea would ever be a part of his life. It uh, was going to be an intervention by God into the life of Moses that would ultimately result in the deliverance of a nation of slaves from Egypt into the promised land. The call of Moses by God is an interesting uh, segment, an interesting story in the, um, in the history of the Israelite people. In our day and time, in the 1950s, a guy named Jim Elliott was a student at Wheaton College, and he was convinced that God had called him to be a missionary, and so he ordered and managed his whole life in that direction. He was also convinced that others should go because of the desperate and urgent need of the world to be told the gospel. And he would speak with and exhort fellow students to consider committing their lives to Christian ministry and specifically missionary service. And he would often meet with the objection, Jim, I, I just don't feel called 
To which he would respond, you don't need a call, you need a kick in the pants. So our man today, Moses, is going to get both a call and a kick in the pants. And we're going to see how that relates to us down the line. His story begins in the book of Exodus, and his life divides nicely into 40-year segments. The first 40 years begins, of course, with his birth, and he's hidden in the reeds of the Nile River for his safety because Pharaoh has made an edict that all the Hebrew boys should be killed at birth. He's hidden and he's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and he's raised in the palace and he grows up in a life of luxury and privilege but somewhere along the line he begins to identify with the Hebrew slaves. He knows, of course, his story of his birth. He knows his origins. And he begins to see that uh, his people, his people, are enslaved and oppressed. And he begins to take their side. He begins to identify with the, the slaves rather than with the luxury of the palace and the life of a prince that he actually lives, he begins to see the downtrodden and oppressed condition of his people. And Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 24 and 25, tell that uh, with this increasing awareness of the slavery of his people, he rejects the luxury of the palace and he embraces the hardship. Think of that. Rejecting luxury, embracing hardship. He did it by faith says the author to the Hebrews. One day, things come to a head and he finds an Egyptian fighting with a Hebrew and he kills, takes the part of the Hebrew and kills the Egyptian. And he finds out the next day that somebody witnessed this and so the news gets to Pharaoh and he, Moses, leaves Egypt. He self-exiles in a land called Midian, which today we know as Saudi Arabia, and he, he, he becomes uh, a resident of that uh, area. He travels to Midian and he meets, uh, by a series of circumstances, the local priest's daughter, marries a preacher's kid. And uh, he protects this priest's daughter who's watering her flocks from the shepherds who would push her and her flocks away while they watered theirs. One thing leads to another, and he marries this priest's daughter. Her name is Zipporah. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And he moves in with his in-laws. And so begins the second 40-year segment of his life. He has a son, and he names him Gershom. The name means that he's a stranger in a foreign country. And so that boy's life reminds him constantly that he belongs somewhere else, but he's here and he's an alien in Midian. Second son is born. His name is Eliezer, and this name reminds him that his father's God has helped him and saved him from the sword of Pharaoh. When Moses talks about his father's God, he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the God of those men, those patriarchs, of the Hebrew nation, <clears throat> and he understands that 
Um, God is the God who appeared to them and is now the God who has delivered him. The events of Exodus 3 and 4, both chapters, take place uh, during the adulthood, or I should say the, these two sons grow to adulthood by the time the events of Exodus 3 and 4 take place. So Moses is nearing the age of 80. He now has a family and a stable, predictable life, albeit in a desert, and albeit in obscurity. But one day something happens to jerk him out of that obscurity. He's shepherding the flock near Mount Sinai, which is in the southern portion of Saudi Arabia, and he sees something strange. He sees a bush on fire, but this bush doesn't burn up. It's burning, but it doesn't burn up. It's not consumed. So he says, I'm going to go over and take a look. You would too. And as he approaches, he hears a, he hears a voice from the bush, and a conversation follows that's going to rip Moses away from everything stable and familiar, put him in harm's way, occupy him fully for the next 40 years of his life. It's going to be, it's going to be the highest and best use of his one precious life. Just remember that. This is going to start now with the highest and best use of his remaining 40 years, and all of his life, 80 years, has been preparation for this time. Moses doesn't think he's prepared, but God knows. And so he contacts Moses through his curiosity. This will be the first of many conversations that he has with God, so much so that uh, by the time Exodus 33 comes to be, Moses sets up a tent of meeting outside the camp, and he goes to that tent regularly. The pillar of cloud comes to the front of the tent, and Moses speaks with God. And the narrative says he would speak with God, and God would speak with him as a friend speaks to a friend. His relationship with God beginning today will be the overwhelmingly dominant aspect of his life. God will have his servant Moses in place to deliver his people from slavery. Now there's a bigger view to this, and it's God's view. God sees this whole picture as part of an ongoing program. The background to this conversation was another conversation between God and Abraham recorded in Genesis 15. God promised Abraham many descendants, but then he told him that they would be slaves for 400 years in a land that was not theirs, but God would bring them back. They would be there as slaves until God set them free and placed them back in this promised land. You can read the details in, Exodus, in Genesis chapter 15. Now is the time God has chosen to fulfill that promise. So the 400 years is almost completed. God has heard the cry of the enslaved Hebrews. He sees their misery, and compassionate as he is, he has come down to rescue them. That's a wonderful picture of God who sees need, human need. He is concerned that this need be met, and so he comes down 
to intervene. He terms it a rescue. He says of himself, I have seen their need, their condition, their terrible plight, and I am concerned and I have come down to rescue them. And that's where Moses comes in. So God, in the opening verses of Exodus chapter 3, commands Moses to go and lead his people out of Egypt. Speak to Pharaoh, he says, and lead my people out of Egypt. Well, that's a big command. And on this day, even the command of God speaking from a burning bush that doesn't burn up doesn't command unquestioning obedience from Moses on the spot. Perhaps you've had a call of God on your life. Did it, did it immediately get you to obey? Or did you have to negotiate a little bit? Did you have to ask God if he really meant what he said? What, what's going on here? We don't always hear the call of God and respond with unquestioning obedience because that's not in our nature. It wasn't in Moses' nature. Moses actually objects to God's call. He actually argues with God. And his argument's made up of five different objections, each one countered by God with some form of the promise of his presence and his power to accomplish his overwhelming, his overarching purpose. The first objection is chapter 3, verse 11. It's the question of identity. Who am I? What? Me? Little old me? I'm a shepherd, the backside of the desert, and you want me to go to the most powerful monarch of the time and speak to him and tell him to let at least half a million men and their families totaling, we'll find there are about two million people by the time Moses gets them across the Red Sea and into the desert. You want me to tell Pharaoh to release two million people? Can you think of the economic and social impact that would have on a nation? I mean, the tax loss alone would be terrible. It's a question of who Moses is. Who am I? Besides that, I've got this, this family. I've got this stable, predictable life. What about my responsibility to my family? I, and I've got a murder in my history. I, 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 I'm persona non grata in Egypt. I can't go back there. Moses can't identify with being a shaper of big events and a mover of powerful people. He's a shepherd. But God promises, God promises his, him his presence. His presence is going to guarantee the success of the, of the, uh, of the mission. And Moses will know that he succeeded when 
it's all said and done, the nation of Israel, a free, formerly enslaved people, worships God at this mountain where Moses is, Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. So the success will be seen when the nation worships God at Mount Sinai, and the presence of God with Moses will guarantee that success. I think Moses paused at this point. And he mulls over in his mind what this will mean. And then he says, but, 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 but wait. If I go to them and tell them this, frankly, outrageous plan, what authority do I have? What they will say to me, who sent you? Who are you? This is not an insolent question. It's a sincere question, but it goes to the issue of authority. If we hear somebody today say, God told me, and then outline an outrageous plan that's going to disrupt everything we know and love, our question is going to be, how do you know it was God? And secondly, how do we know we can trust him and you? So it's not an insolent question, but it's a necessary question for Moses. And I suspect if we were in Moses' shoes, we'd ask a question too. Who, who are you? Tell me something about yourself that I can then relay to the people of Israel, the elders of the nation and Pharaoh, in order that I might have a basis of authority in what I say and in my approach. So Moses gets a lesson in theology proper. That's the study of the nature and character of God. Moses knows something about God from his knowledge of the story of creation and the flood and the call of Abraham and the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I doubt that it's written down by this point, but Moses lives in an oral culture, and so it's certainly been passed along uh, verbatim, the stories of these men and God's work in their lives. If we look back <clears throat> in the book of Genesis, we find there's a couple of times when God is described by people. First of all, there's the description of Hagar when she is uh, on the verge of death in the desert with her son Ishmael and God leads her to a spring and she gets from that spring water and a, le a new lease on life she eventually goes to Egypt and Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations and <clears throat> um, she describes God according to what he has done the God who sees. Well, that's a great revelation in itself because all the other idols of the nations have eyes, but they don't see. And she says, the God who sees is the one who delivered me. And then Abraham later is called upon to sacrifice the son of the promise, Isaac. Sacrifice him. He does. He gets almost to the point of plunging the knife, 
into Isaac, and a voice from heaven says, don't. And he doesn't. Because there's a ram caught by his horns in a bush nearby, and Abraham comes, uh, comes from that experience with a description of God as the, the God who provides, Jehovah Jireh. Both of those are expressions of what God does. Moses is going to get an expression of who God is. And we, by extension, learn some things about God from his telling us of his name. This is, I'm more than what I do, God is saying. This is who I am in my essential being, my nature. He says, you tell the Israelites, I am who I am. This is the name that God wants to be known by going forward. It's made up of four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H in English. Those aren't Hebrew letters, those are English letters. And somewhere along the line, uh, some German scholars got a hold of it in the 19th century and added an A and an E so that it's Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. And somewhere along the line since then, it got made into Jehovah. But for Moses, this is the name by which God wants to be named, named or known. It denotes, it denotes faithfulness and dependability. But it also denotes some other things. You'll notice that it's in the present tense. That's because God lives outside time and space. His existence is eternally in the now. His existence is eternally and always present. He has no past and he has no future, although he sometimes says to Moses, for Moses' benefit, I will be, that's a future act, but, but that's for Moses' benefit. It doesn't go to the question of God's essence. Essentially, God is, etern is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And for him, time and space are constructs for our benefit. He carries out his redemptive program in time and in space. But he is affected by neither. So he's eternal. It also speaks of his perfection of being. Uh, and when I say perfection of being, I mean being. His, his existence is perfect and complete. That is, he, he never becomes anything. He's complete and perfect being without any becoming. Becoming would suggest change. We want to become better. We want to become different. We want to become something else. But God never becomes anything. He is essentially being, and it's perfect. It will allow no improvement, and no improvement is necessary. Another thing that flows from this is that God is absolutely and eternally free. Now, we have a certain degree of freedom, and we like to say that we are free, but our freedom is a constrained freedom. 
We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose our place of birth. All the important things about us, we had no control over. And so, <clears throat> our freedom is a constrained and a derived freedom. It's a gift. We get freedom given to us up to a point. God has no constraints on his freedom. He is essentially always perfectly free. He doesn't have to change his program to suit human whims or human impulses. Nothing that we do throws God off his plan. Nothing that we do throws him off his perfect purpose, which he sovereignly designs and carries out because he is totally and unconstrainedly free in his own essence, in himself. He, he's also self-existent. We say that God, we, we have a derived existence. We, we were brought into existence by our parents. God, being eternal and eternally present without a beginning, has within himself all that is necessary to continue his eternal existence. He is self-existent, you see. No one helps him to continue being. No one needs to. He needs nothing and no one to continue his being. Norman Geisler, my systematic theology professor at Dallas years ago, said, God only needs to do one thing, and that is to continue to will his own self-existence. Well, that's kind of too deep for me, but I'll throw it out there for you, and you make of it what you will. God needs nothing and no one. He is self-existent and has within himself all that is necessary to continue his eternal existence. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, and he's talking about who their father is. They say our father's Abraham. He says your father's the devil. And if your father really was Abraham, you would accept me and believe me, but you don't, so you're following Satan. And he says Abraham as if he was still living, rejoiced to see my day, meaning my incarnation and my life in the present tense. Abraham rejoiced to see me come to this earth to live this life, ultimately to become a sacrifice and to redeem people back to God. And the Pharisees said, you're not 50 years old, and you say you've seen Abraham, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses this same expression that God uses. He essentially claims for himself all that God is because he says, I am, meaning, I'm Yahweh. 
And the Jews, of course, think it's blasphemy that he claims equality with God. So they pick up stones to stone him. He fades into the background and they can't do anything to him. The Jews understood this as blasphemy. But they also thought it was untrue. So if it's untrue, then it's blasphemy. But if it's true, it's not blasphemy. If it's true, it's true. So just to link God of the Moses conversation with Jesus of the Pharisees' conversation and with the Savior that God is providing. You see, in the larger picture, not just the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt, but in the larger picture, God has seen has seen the enslaved and oppressed condition of the human race under sin. And he's become concerned. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he's come down. He takes on himself human form. He provides deliverance for those who want it. There's another objection. Number three, oh, and by the way, God tells Moses that he can uh, approach the elders of Israel with the name that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they'll recognize that. And then he says, now go. But Moses has another objection. Uh, uh, but what if, what, if they won't, what if they won't believe me? Here's the, here's the credibility question that sometimes comes to us when we hear the call of God or the nudging of the Spirit to go across the street or go next door and speak to someone. What if they won't believe me? I'm, Moses sees he's putting himself out there on the line and his credibility is going to be questioned. And God says, okay. I'll give you a couple of signs to authenticate yourself and the message. And so he says, what's that in your hand? And Moses says, it's a, it's a staff. And he says, throw it on the ground. And he does, and it becomes a snake. And Moses, God says, pick it up by the tail. And Moses does, and becomes a staff again. That's a miracle. Do that, and that will authenticate your message and you as the messenger. And also, uh, here's another one. Put your hand inside your shirt or your coat and pull it out. And when he does, it's withered as if it had no blood supply. It's white. It's paralyzed, I, I think. God says, put it back inside your cloak. And he does. And when he pulls it out again, it's whole again. God says, there's a sign. There's two signs, in fact. And then he, he points out that the signs in themselves will not compel belief. The signs only authenticate the message and authenticate the messenger. He says, maybe they won't believe you if you do those signs. 
fact, he says if you, they do the first, you do the first one, they don't believe. You do the second one, maybe they'll believe you. The point is that the people's faith in Moses, the credibility question, is not going to be compelled by the signs. It will authenticate Moses, yes. It will let Moses say, see, I come from God. See, I have God's power. See, you should listen to me. But it doesn't make them listen. It doesn't make them believe. God says if they don't believe you after you uh, uh, do those two signs, uh, take some water from the Nile and throw it on the ground. It'll become blood. Maybe then they'll, they'll believe you. But the point in this reply of God is that the signs do not compel belief. They only authenticate the message and the messenger. So the messenger, Moses, you shouldn't put your trust in the signs. And he's one of the first in a long line of prophets to use miracles to authenticate the message. But as we know from history, the miracles never actually compelled faith. Even the greatest miracle of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, authenticates Jesus as the Son of God, authenticates his sacrifice as approved by God, but people still hear the story and shrug. Whatever, man. Or they get patronizing and they say, oh, that's so nice that you believe that. See, the signs in themselves don't compel belief. Jesus' miracles in his day didn't compel faith. Miracles today don't compel faith. A fourth objection, chapter 4, verse 10. I, I, I'm, I'm not eloquent. I, I can't speak. I don't think this is necessarily a reference to a speech impediment, but rather to the fact that Moses is not skilled in debate or the art of persuasion. In a room full of people, Moses doesn't command attention or hearing. You know, remember the old, I don't know if you do, remember the old E.F. Hutton stock trade commercial, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen? Well, when Moses speaks, people don't listen. And Moses is saying, I have no presence. In a room full of powerful people, I don't command much attention. They'd rather talk about the football scores than talk with me. You can sense God becoming a little more curt and less tolerant of Moses' objections in his answers. His answers are now in the form of rhetorical questions. You, you, you don't need to answer these statements, Moses, these questions. Who made your mouth? Who made your tongue? Do you think I don't have it in my power to make a man blind or to let him see? To make him deaf or to make him mute? Do you think you're going out there on your own? Get real, Moses. I'm going with you. Stop looking at this as if I'm sending you out there alone. Go. I will be 
with you. Stop thinking that I'm telling you to go by yourself. I'm going to be right there beside you. The promise of his presence with the mission. Objection number five, <clears throat> chapter four, verse 13. Well, I, I, just send somebody else, please. Now Moses is bordering on outright refusal, and he's taking his life in his hands, and God, I think there's only one verse <laughs> devoted to God's reply here. I'm going to send Aaron with you. Now get going. He's bordering on outright refusal, and the scriptures say that the Lord's anger burned toward Moses. All he does is promise that, Abraham, uh, that Aaron will go with him, and Moses needs to get going. And by the way, Moses, take the staff with you. Now the rest of chapter 4 unfolds, and Moses does a little logistics uh, planning, and he goes back to his father-in-law, and he says, I need to take my family and go to Egypt. And his father-in-law, more perceptive than he, says, blessings on you, son-in-law, go. You're... you're May the Lord be with you. But he's still not out of the woods because on the way back to Egypt, <laughs> the text says the angel of the Lord was about to kill him. What? Yeah, the angel of the Lord was about to kill him. Why? Because he hadn't yet circumcised his son, maybe the second son. It's a... It's a, a not very often noted passage that tells us that, that the commands of God are to be carried out and that God will exact the just penalty for noncompliance even to his chosen servant. It's not our job to get into the what if Moses had been killed that's not told us in scripture what is told us is that his wife was more spiritually perceptive than he was and she actually did the circumcision flung the bloody foreskin at his feet and said you're a husband of blood to me she sort of sounds kind of disgusted you know but that was another close call that Moses had by not carrying out the sign of the covenant given to Abraham, and in so doing, Zipporah preserved her husband's life. The family travels on. Moses and Aaron get to Egypt. They assemble the elders of Israel, and Moses performs the signs. And he tells them that the Lord has seen their misery and is concerned about them. And they believe. And when they hear this, 
They bow and worship. The elders of the people bow and worship God. Remember Moses' fears about they won't believe me, they won't listen to me, they won't do this, they won't do that. See, God had it all covered. All he has to do is give the message. God is concerned about us. He sees our plight. He's come down to help us. We believe. We worship. Uh, as far as we're concerned today, God's probably not calling us to deliver a nation out of slavery, physical slavery. But he has placed us in a world where all around us are sin-enslaved people, and they're miserable because of it. God has seen their plight, our plight. We were in that condition. And he has come down to help us in the person of his son. And he's provided a way whereby our sin can be taken away. Forgiven means taken out of, the, out of the picture altogether. What happens to it is it's placed on Jesus at the cross. Past, present, future around the cross was placed on Jesus. All the sin of the human race so that now God can take the sin of those who trust Jesus and exchange it for Jesus' righteousness. It's a great exchange, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. What do we have to do? Well, we have to go. Maybe not across the ocean, although that is a possibility. We have missionaries from this church who've gone to other countries. We have to go across the street. We have to go across the lawn to next door. We have to go to the people we work with. We have to trust that God will go with us. Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 says, Go because I've got all the authority. The 18th verse says, I've got the authority. The 19th verse says, as you go, going is assumed, and it's not negotiable. In your going is a literal translation of that phrase. In your going, make disciples, and I'm going to be with you. Sounds a lot like Moses' commission. You go to the sin-enslaved people that live all around you. Tell them that I'm, I've seen their plight. I'm concerned about them, and I want them to take advantage of the plan that I have to redeem them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he promises us his power. You will receive, he's about to ascend into heaven. You will receive power, he says, after the Holy Ghost comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Non-negotiable. 
You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. And he gives us his Holy Spirit. In the rest of the New Testament, there are several references to the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within us. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray. The Holy Spirit, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we come to the conclusion that it's not about us, actually. It's about obedience. Answering the call obediently may rip us from everything known and familiar. It may, but it will put us at the disposal of the eternally present one who has concern for sin-enslaved people. It may put us in harm's way, but as with Moses, it will be the highest and best use of our remaining life, our one precious life. Jim Elliott would join four other young men and go to, the, go to Ecuador where, he would, where there was an unreached tribe of Indians called Alcas. They would establish contact and attempt to establish trust. They would land the plane, they'd set up camp on a riverside, and then they would die at the hands of those they had come to reach. Jim Elliott was 28 years old. The news shocked the world and it rocked the church, but the wives of those men, and eventually some of their children, continued to reach out to the Alcas because God continues to reach out to people, even those who hate him and kill him. Reached out to the Alcas, and a few years later, a church was established. Formerly enslaved to sin, Alcas were delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Out of death, into life. Out of sin, into righteousness. So we have the call, see, do we need a kick in the pants? On the other hand, perhaps you're here this morning and you can't identify with Moses talking with God. I'm not even sure God exists. Maybe you identify more with the Israelite nation than you do with Moses. They're enslaved. You're not enslaved to human beings, but you are enslaved to sin and your master is Satan. You're miserable and you don't know why. You sense an emptiness, need for something. Your need is for deliverance. Well, you wish you could believe that God is concerned about you. You wish you could believe that he's taken note of your misery. That'd be great news if it were true. Well, it is. God sees you. To see one is to know one. When God sees, he knows. And he sees you, and he knows you. And he's concerned about you. And he's made a plan to rescue you. All you have to do is reach out in faith for the life preserver that he's thrown to the human race while takes care of the rescue, while the rescue is in progress. You have to ask God by faith and in humility to forgive your sin for Jesus' sake. He'll take it away. 
and he'll replace your sin with Jesus' righteousness, and he'll make you his child. If you'd like to talk to me about this in more detail, I'll be available afterward to help you. Let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we're impressed with your patience. We're impressed with your power. We're impressed with Moses' nerve in questioning you, but we can't be too hard on Moses because we're not always immediately obedient ourselves. I pray that we might become more sensitive to your leading, more sensitive to your direction, less questioning, more faith-filled and faithful. I pray for those who are here but do not know you. I pray that they might be brought into saving relationship with you through faith in your Son. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. <clears throat>